It is the day after the 88th Academy Awards, and uh, Mark, we're going to have some interesting thoughts, aren't we? I know I am. I'm not sure about your thoughts. Oh, I've got some thoughts. I sure do. I Boy, don't do. I. Oh, yes, I do. And uh, we, also, um, we also should start the show off by uh, giving a wonderful, great rest in peace and in memoriam to the man who had the bad manners to die the day after the Academy Awards uh, so that he will probably have now the longest period to wait before he shows up in an Oscar in memoriam. And watch them not even pay tribute to him like they forgot Abe Vigoda and a million other people last night. But uh, that is, of course, George Kennedy, the man who... How many times did he did he have to save a plane? Four, it's like four times. Four times. He was in all the airport films. All, it's, it's like six airport films, aren't there? Are there yes, six he played Joe Patroni. Yeah. <laughs> So George Kennedy, age ninety-one, passed away today. Very, now, by very the sad. way, you know how whenever the uh, when it, you know people complain yeah. that the Academy left off this guy and that guy from the in memoriam, yeah. and sometimes the Academy will say that they did not die during the calendar year. Yeah. Well, you know what? They had David Bowie. Uh, yeah. True. And they, you know, so it gets very political too. I mean, there you, you well, know well, you, you have to lobby to be. Yeah, you notice included. how many executives are in the in the thing too. It's uh, it, yeah, it gets uh, it gets very political. Uh, but uh, you know who also died yesterday, uh, the uh, same day as the Academy Awards? Not that it had any impact because he's primarily a television actor, but Frank Kelly. Oh, my God. Frank Kelly? Frank Kelly. Wow. Who's Frank Kelly? You have no idea Frank Kelly. I do not. Uh, Frank Kelly from Father Ted. Oh, Father Ted's funny. I've seen Father Ted. Father Ted. Frank Kelly is the, the old priest who sits there drunk in the, in the, in the corner back and goes, Fat girls drink. Nuns. That guy. So uh, he, he, it was uh, Father Jack. That was the character, Father Jack. You, you, you've seen Father Ted. I've seen Father Ted. Yeah. I like Father Ted. You remember Father it's Jack? A... He's just he's just the drunk old priest who sits against the wall, and there's like you know dirt on the wall because he never moves. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. All I know is that I've seen Father Ted, and it is funny. Anyway, yeah. nobody cares about Father Ted. Yeah. Uh, we care about the Oscars. Wade. Yes. that's what people want to hear us. And when I say us, I mean you. Yes. Talk about. It. Well, uh, as it happens, and talk about great timing, uh, Spotlight, which won Best Picture, as I predicted that it would, uh, it comes out on DVD and Blu-ray this week. So we've got it on tap just literally the day after. Here we go. Boom. Spotlight. There it is. Ready for you to buy. Ready for you to rent. Ready for you to watch. And well worth it. Uh, now, here's the thing. Were you – did you – I'm assuming you picked Spotlight because I imparted of my wisdom and I told you to pick Spotlight. So you knew that you needed to. I picked Spotlight because it had the proper indicators of success. So who are all these crazy people that were picking The Revenant? Seriously. I don't know. I don't know. You know what? I think that The Revenant probably had a very small core of hardcore admirers. I don't care if they're admirers. Honestly, I, I I saw sites, and I will not name names, but people who we know who've been in the business a very long time who are saying, oh, yeah, The Revenant's got it locked. And I'm thinking to myself, what have you not learned? I mean, are you really? Because it why? Because it won the Golden Globe and it won BAFTA. Like those are not Oscar indicators. No, no, nobody, nobody belong- votes. Nobody in the Academy belongs to the you know to BAFTA or the Golden Globes. I mean, a few belong to BAFTA, but it's a very small group that overlaps between the two. It's not significant, and uh, you know the the indicators were basically as I noted on on Film Week, and I think I've mentioned here. If you if you look at the Guild Awards. Here are two unimpeachable facts. 
No film has ever won Best Picture, ever, ever, in generations that failed to get either a nomination for an Oscar screenplay, for an Oscar nomination for screenwriting, or a WGA nomination for screenwriting. Every film that has ever won Best Picture has had one of those. The Revenant had neither. Since the SAG Awards started in 1995... Only once has a film ever won Best Picture that was not at least nominated for the SAG Ensemble Award, and that was in that first year. Okay, Braveheart was not nominated for an Ensemble Award, but once everybody kind of caught wind of the SAG Awards, every every single year since it, it was either the winning one or one that was nominated. Revenant was not nominated. I mean, plus two years in a row, no one has ever won Best Picture two years in a row. Same director. No one's. Ever, I mean, Joseph L. Mankiewicz and John Ford won it two years in a row. As best director, but you know only the only the second year best picture. I mean, these are these are like stats that you can look up. This isn't rocket science. Who are these people who are picking the revenant? What were they? What were they looking at? Emotion. Just rolling the dice. Yeah, yeah it, was, it. it was all emotion. And see, that was my mistake. That's I, I think everyone's mistake with Stallone. I even said this too. I was like, oh, Stallone's going to win it just on emotion. And I was even saying, of course, if I were voting, I'd vote for Rylands. And I talked to people, they're like, yeah, Ryland's was the best one, but Stallone's going to win it. And apparently every Academy member also felt the same way. Well, Stallone's going to win it, but I'm voting for Ryland's. And, you know, I guess Ryland's carried the true. day. I also think that... I mean, he deserved to win. I, that's, yes. I, that's why I'm, I, I didn't pick him, but I was like, well, that's really kind of not... I mean, I feel sorry for Sly, but in point of fact, Ryland's carried that movie. Well, also in point of fact, Sloan has done a lot of crap between his two Oscar nominations for Best Actor. Ah, uh, but come on now, Cobra... He he was he was screwed out of a nomination for Cobra. Especially in that opening scene where where the, where the guy goes, I'm going to blow up this supermarket. And Cobra says, it's all right. I don't shop here. <laughs> the best. No, but I, I really think that Stallone might have taken a bit of a hit. Yeah. Because he's, you know, you can't suddenly do 35 intervening years of crap, expendable yeah. films and Cobra and Rambo junk True. and whatever, and then suddenly decide that you're yeah. going to resurrect your most beloved character and then win an Oscar True. suddenly. But True. by the way, he was good in the movie. He's very good in the movie. You know? Yeah, he is. He uh, very good but I think that Rylance gave the We're going to talk about that too. What? Creed. We are. Yes. Okay, fine. So, um, well, here's the, you know, here, here are the other, my other reads in the evening. I thought Chris Rock, given the fact that he was suddenly... Uh, hamstrung at the last minute by expectations that he had to come out and basically be the black guy who made a lot of black jokes about, you know, representation and diversity. I think despite having sort of straight jacketed him into that role, he did fine. There were some really weird low moments that Stacy Dash thing and the, and the Asian kids. It was, I, I, none of that was, was, was good, but, uh, you know, on, on, on balance, I guess he, he was fine. He, he was given a very difficult challenge, very which challenge. is that essentially, the diversity issue ate up the award season conversation. It became a cultural conversation, and yeah. everybody's looking at this one guy to somehow set it all straight. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is a really tough thing to do. And I think that he did about as good as you he could did. possibly do. I will say that if it wasn't for the Stacey Dash, whatever that was, I mean, that was we so... put America's best scientists on that, and we still don't know what the hell the con <laughs> what, what, what the premise was of that joke. And the Asian kids, which was odd because it played off of. Really low stereotypes. It's yeah. like, you know, if you want to make a joke at the expense of Asians or Jews, I mean, it, it, to me, it's all fair game. If it's funny, it's funny. But that one played off of stereotypes that I think he's, he's better than that. Yeah. If it wasn't for those two failed jokes, I think he'd probably get praised more. And what's funny is that, you know, the ratings for the show were down. Yeah. Like an eight-year low. Well, yeah, because there, there, there were no – there were no – look, the, Star Wars was not nominated for Best Picture. 
people will tune in if they have heard of any of the films that are nominated. The only bona fide blockbuster of the eight films was Mad Max. And Mad Max was not like a mega summer tentpole. There are like ten films that made more money than Mad Max because it was rated R and it, it had a... You know, it had a very, very uh, culty pedigree. So uh, it, 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 there was no, there are no Transformers. There's no Dark Knight. There's no Avengers. There's none of those movies that are nominated. I mean, you know, it, normally you you have uh, it, back in the day, you know, you had certain artsy blockbusters that had a certain appeal. Whether it was Rain Man or whether it was Dances with Wolves or Braveheart or Gladiator. I mean, th- those are all blockbusters. But they're kind of artsy blockbusters. They're well, really because they're, they're they're not based on superheroes or right whatever. The, whenever there's a film like that in the running, and we could even go back to ET or Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Any of that stuff. Those are the movies that draw people's attention, and there wasn't one of those this year. So you know you're gonna get a. You're gonna and that's get... the whole. What's funny is that the whole reason why they extended the best picture count right. between five and ten was to, to was to let in the Star Wars and to let in the Avengers. In the end. It really, <laughs> Mad Max is probably the biggest tentpole yeah. film that's been nominated for Best Picture since they the, decided the to The irony it. is by forcing people to rank films and that whole weird algorithm that, that requires that you have X number of number one place votes or first place votes, that's undoubtedly what kept Straight Outta Compton away from a Best Picture nomination. I mean, there's no question. And they caught flack. And that would have... That would have actually increased the ratings of the show. If that had been in there, that would have been a much more populist art film that people would have been invested in. But if that would have been nominated, you would not have this whole diversity no, conversation. No, you would not. You would not. You know? And what's interesting is that you know ABC is trying to extend its licensing agreement for the Oscar telecast. You know, It runs out in 2020. Yeah. And now with the ratings down, here's the thing. ABC has no say in the telecast. No. The Academy hires the host. The Academy hires the producers. It's the yep. Academy show. ABC just airs it. Mm-hmm. And ABC has always wanted a seat at the table in terms of deciding what the show's going to be. Yeah. And with the ratings down and ABC wanting to renegotiate, ABC may say, hey, you know, we'll extend, but, but you've you got you yeah, to give us, us some control over the show. Throw us a bone, yeah. It'll be man. very interesting to see whether ABC, ABC and the, whether the Academy will let that happen. That will be interesting. That will be interesting. Well, we'll see. In any case, um, I will say this, that it had a couple of things that I thought were unbelievably hilarious. Uh, specifically, the Jack Black thing, uh, yeah, yeah, sort of, that was a cheap joke. But uh, oh, Tracy Morgan is the oh Danish gosh, girl? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. When, when Tracy Morgan says, I'm the Danish girl. I, I was I was in tears. No, no, I he goes, lost bladder control. I was writhing on the floor. I was, was you had to scoop me up. It was it was his, I just could not handle it. And then he goes nailed it. <laughs> I'll tell you, my boy, he's been he's been making the rounds ever since uh, he's recovered from that horrible accident. Yeah, uh, and I'm so the Danish girl. He was also on. You know, Jimmy Kimmel had their 11th annual did uh, you watch, Oscar show. Did you watch the Jimmy Kimmel thing? I watched uh, much of it, not all of it. it. There was some great stuff on that. That too. That, uh, the that Ben, ben Affleck thing. The well, not just the Ben Affleck thing, but the thing. Well, the thing that he did with with um, the Batman Superman bit. Did you see that thing? Uh, yes, I did. That was a riot. It's funny. That was hysterical. I mean that was really funny. That show, that that after Oscar show that he does, he's yeah. done. This is the eleventh year he's done it. Yeah, that's sort of like must watch late night television because he gets. Because here's the thing: everybody's across the street. Yeah, they're across the street. Yeah. Literally, literally, it's like it's they great. have to walk across the street, do the show. Yeah, and they're smart because now it's become this thing that just it's become a cool thing for celebrities yeah. to do. 
Now, a lot of times they pre-tape their bits. They'll, they maybe had paneled on the show a month earlier, mm-hmm. so they pre-tape their bit. They put it all together in time for the show. But still, it's become this thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's, a, great, it's a great tradition. It's, it's a great tradition. Stuff. It's a really funny show. Unlike the Super Bowl, which has this, like 17 hours of lead-in pontificating with lots of former football players who just ramble about who, who they think is going to do what and when, um, the Oscars really has a nice... Nicely structured all day thing, you know. You got about an hour and a half of red carpet arrivals, some idiots commenting on dresses. Oh my god! And... You know what? Here's the thing. Okay, <laughs> I, do people email us at gods at digigods dot com and tell us whether you get George Pinocchio? Do you get him in, in your market? Is, is is he a national guy? No, he's local. Okay, thank God. Yeah, he is the worst. Uh, anyway, a... and then they have all these red carpet idiots. Uh, you know what? I gotta say. Uh, just talking about the fashion and just a bunch of just really blow-dried bloviators just talking about nothing of substance. True. It really is terrible. Yeah. It's like nobody expects much of substance, but literally you might as well just yeah. have just gerbils chirping. It's just They're saying nothing. Yeah. Very true. Well, before we get on to uh, all of our uh, our great stuff to cover, uh, quick reminder, we have one week left. We're going to be still taking new intros. So gods at digigods.com, send us new intros. If you got any, one week left, one week left. Come on, send us some good ones. Vox boxes, listener mail. Uh, we're open to all of it. And uh, we are moving on the website, the synagogues.com website. Uh, it's been a long time in, in coming. We are uh, going to move on that very soon. So await that. And please go to uh, digigods.com after each show if you want to see a complete rundown of all the show, all the uh, titles that we talk about with links that take you right to Amazon. So no need to go scouring for it. If you just go to digigods.com, boom, there it is, the complete list, all hyperlinked, nicely done. Uh, and I want to read just a couple of little uh, emails. We'll, we'll read more on the next show. But uh, Al in San Francisco sent us something very uh, timely with respect to uh, Doug Slocum. And who is like the third great cinematographer to die? Well, f- there were four like uh, within just weeks, but Slocum Maybe is like, like 102 or something. There's 101. And, you know, it's amazing when you look at the list of great British DPs, how many of them live to be, you know, 88, 90, 94, 96, 98. Uh, it's amazing. They, they, the longevity of being, I mean, the, the way to live a long life is just be a British DP. And I know that's not the easy, you know, being a DP is one thing, to become British is maybe a little harder. Uh, will be harder yet if they if they leave the uh, the euro anyway. But uh, he said, uh, speaking of the Italian job specifically, he said the look of that film is simply gorgeous, almost too good for such a lighthearted caper. Uh, I say the, that the ultimate banishing of groundbreaking late sixties, early seventies cinema to ancient history status is as much as the passing of the era's directors, the eventual absence of every single one of those singular singular cinematographers and editors. Laszlo, Vilmos, Willis, Wexler, uh, Arthur Ornitz, Conrad Hall, Jeffrey Unsworth, Sven Nyqvist, Doug Slocum, uh, the two Surtees, William Fraker, they're all gone. When Rogue, Muller, Kemper, Storaro, and their living contemporaries eventually depart, all bets are off. Then officially, the painterly muted bravely chiaroscuro look of that era can never again be realized, partly because that mysterious, dark sensibility is so repulsed in such an obnoxiously bright, optimistic society as today's. With the passing of that generation of artists comes also the final farewell to a whole way of looking at the world. I thought that was, like, poetic. It was beautiful. That, so, Al, that's one of the most poetic things we've ever gotten uh, by way of an email, and an amazing tribute to the artists of that generation. And 
It's kind of true. You know, there is a painterly look to a certain generation of films. Well, the thing is that for the younger generation, they yeah. only know digital. Yeah. They don't know film. If you're, if, if you're a DP who's, who ju- who's, just, who's 10 years old now, hoping to shoot films, and they grew up, they love movies, they'll only know digital. And by the way, a few other little weird uh, tidbits, speaking of, you know, I mean, there is a, a, an amazingly, the fact that, uh, that uh, Emmanuel Lubetsky has won three consecutive Oscars for cinematography is historic. No one's ever done that before. And well-deserved. And well-deserved, because he is one of the He's last greats. He's a genius. And speaking of, I did just see the new Malick film, which he, of course, shot again, because he only works with three directors now, right? By and large, he only works with three directors. And Malick being one of them. And... Um, I'm going to be talking about this with Tim on Film Week on Friday, but uh, it's fascinating because we realize now, and this is a bit of a Film Week preview, that Tree of Life and uh, To the Wonder and the new film, which is called Night of Cups, based on the, uh, you know, the card from tarot reading, Night of Cups, uh, it's a trilogy. The three films are a trilogy, and they're, they're an autobiographical trilogy of episodes from Malik's own life. And it's fascinating. And it's part way. You're watching Night of Cups and you're thinking, okay, it's more of the same, you know, the improv and meditative and the voiceover. And then suddenly you realize, wait a minute, this is, there's a whole like two brothers and a deceased brother and a father. This is like the same family dynamic from, from Tree of Life all grown up. This is, there's something, there's some connective so tissue. You're saying that there's a method to the madness. I'm saying there's a real method to it. What I'm saying is, is that Malik has executed basically a three-film trilogy about his own life and uh, and his reaching for meaning in his own life and reevaluating all of his familial and romantic relationships, his marriages. I think all of this factors into these last three films. I think he's in a really reflexive period. And uh, I, I think it's fascinating because he has not said this, and uh, you do have to kind of piece it together from what little we know about his private life. But it's, it's really fascinating. Well, usually when people do autobiographical projects like that, you do get a sense of the, yes. the issues that they were grappling with, whether or not they can, they can overcome them. Here, his movies are so opaque at this point that if he's grappling with something, we don't know what it is. Well, it's Although a- Night of Cups, you know, seems, is basically, seems a little bit more coherent than the last two. Lubetsky is phenomenal once again. I mean, amazing work. And the uh, spotlight, the very deserved spotlight. Well, let's get into it. Hold on. Let's, uh, let's pull out spotlight. Here we go. Spotlight, Blu-ray, DVD. Here it is. Uh, a couple of interesting tidbits on spotlight. And, of course, I think everybody by now knows this is about the Boston Globe and the investigation into the, uh, the Catholic Church priest abuse scandal and possibly the best film about the actual journalistic process ever made with all due respect to, you know, the insider and all the president's men. Really, if you've worked at a newspaper or for a publication, doesn't this pretty much nail it? Absolutely. 100%. It's, un- it's unreal. It's unbelievable how spot on it is and couldn't come at a better time to sort of reinforce the importance of real investigative journalism as opposed to just rambling bloggers who've, you know, stolen everybody's thunder. But here are the, here are the things that are interesting about this. Uh, the two Oscars that it won for screenplay and picture, fewest number of Oscars won by a Best Picture since 1952. Did you know that? I did not know that. And uh, the, the, that was the last time that a Best Picture won only two, uh, two awards, which was uh, for uh, the, uh, great, uh, the Greatest Show on Earth, the Cecil B. DeMille thing. And then uh, also the winning company, the distributor of this, Open Road Films, which is co-owned by Regal Cinemas and AMC Cinemas, 
run by Tom Ortenberg, who I've been who I've been uh, pestering for weeks and telling him that he was going to win uh, win Best Picture. Um, Tom Ortenberg used to be with uh, Lionsgate, and I used to interview him all the time for for Box Office. And he was the only he was the only sane executive I could ever get hold of who'd really just kind of give me the business. And uh, he went from Lionsgate to Weinstein Company for a few months, and then he wound up running Open Road. Open Road was formed fewer than five years ago. That is the briefest, that is the youngest company to win a Best Picture Academy Award since 1931 and 32 with RKO, which was formed before there were even Academy Awards. How about like uh, Orion? Orion took seven years. Weinstein Company took a little over five years. Mm -hmm. DreamWorks took a little over five. This is the fastest. Faster than DreamWorks, faster than Orion, faster than Weinstein Company. So, but even Bravo. the Weinstein Company had Miramax before that. You could admit, you could say, you, you know, could DreamWorks. Say, yes. What was DreamWorks? Shrek or something? Crap like what was that? Yeah, it was, it was, you know, I mean, the, the first film they won for was uh, American Beauty. But, American Beauty. Yeah, but um, yeah. So uh, you know, Open Road has really—they've pretty much killed it. They've really, really killed it, and uh, I couldn't be prouder. So anyway, really good film. Happy for Tom McCarthy, who you yes, know, isn't that great? Finally. You know, he's one of those guys that uh, everybody on the fringes loved him. They loved the, his storytelling style, very relaxed, very insightful. And, you know, this is his, obviously, his breakout film. Yeah. You know? Well, here's the thing about the film, too. Uh, and it won the SAG Award, of course, which was a great predictor, once again, of the of Best Picture. Um, all the performances in this thing are so well modulated. It's kind of weird that uh, Mark Ruffalo and Rachel McAdams got the Oscar nominations because they're sort of the most... They're sort of like... I mean, you could have nominated anybody from this. Stanley Tucci was my favorite. Michael Keaton was amazing. Although it was funny to see Michael Keaton uh, get up there last night because he's now done that for two years in a row. Yeah. He was up there on stage for Birdman. Now he's up there on stage for Spotlight. That's good. That guy has starred in two consecutive Best uh, best Picture Oscar winners. I'm so happy for him. Couldn't happen to a better Batman. Couldn't have. And honestly, Liev Schreiber, it's amazing. Terrific, too. And, and you know, there are people, it's funny because there, this is, this gives you a, a sense, too. Um, you know, we, we, because of the field that we're in, we connect to a lot of these people. Uh, whenever I go into, at least after, right after the film started kind of getting some traction, uh, and I went into to KPCC for, for Film Week, a lot of people there have worked with the guy played by Liev Schreiber. And they all said, it's amazing. He's just like that. Like, that was the ma- that's the most amazing. He's, that's the guy. What, what Shri- he, that's the guy. That's the guy. Every single day. That's exactly how he is. It's how he talks. It's how he, you know, and, and uh, if you can sort of put all that together, I mean, that film's going to just speak to people. And also, just, just think of how McCarthy directed the actors. You know, the only one who really, like, gets very indignant about the whole thing is, is Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. I mean, really, everybody else... They're well-modulated. They treat it as journalists who yep. are on a story. They know it's an important story, but he doesn't, he doesn't turn up the histrionics. McCarthy, love, Stanley he just Tucci. won't do that. Stanley Tucci's so good. I'm very busy. I'm very busy. I'm sorry. I'm very busy. He's like busy through the whole thing. Can't be bothered. So good. Um, anyway, really great team. We're, we're, we're just thrilled for all the people involved in Spotlight. And uh, for Tom McCarthy. Couldn't happen to a better guy. He's been on the bubble for so long. Uh, basically, not many, by, not much by way of extras here. Just some featuretty stuff. But it's very interesting. There's a roundtable 
Uh, and it's, uh, it, it's, it's all you really need. Otherwise, the film is, is, is it. And uh, this is from Universal. Open Road releases through Universal. That's their output deal. And you also get Ultraviolet on here, a Blu-ray, DVD, Ultraviolet combo set. You should own this. It, uh, go Put it right on that section of the shelf with Best Picture winners now. By the way, can I, can I just uh, uh, harken back to the Oscars for a second? Yes. That stupid thank you crawl, get rid of it. Oh, that was horrible. You know what? Oh, my gosh, they, it was they, awful. They did that because they thought that it would make uh, acceptance speeches shorter because it less people to thank. You know, move this thing along. Yeah, it's no. not going to happen. No. You want an Oscar. You're going to thank whoever the hell you're going to thank. Stop the show, that. The show's three and a half hours. It's going it's to be three and a half hours. It, it just is. I mean, I, and I'd rather, I'd rather it be four hours uh, with lots of entertaining segments than even like three brisk hours of just people, you know, reading and announcing winners. I, I, give me some, give me something to chew on. That's the thing is that literally, if all they did was give out awards, the show would still be would would be two and a half hours right there. Yeah, that's true. all they did. Yeah. So now you got the monologue, you got the comedy bits, yeah. you got the commercial breaks, you got the whole thing going. It's yeah. it's, it's just a show that it will never be three hours. Nope. So stop trying to make it three hours. Don't do it. All right. All right, Mark, what, 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 what other wonderful uh, nominated movie shall we talk about? Wade, uh, let me tell you something. Yes, sir. So uh, I, I'd be very honest with you. Yeah. Now, uh, last year when we voted, or actually uh, last year when we voted LA Film Critics New Generation Award, there were two films that everybody kept mentioning as the award voting went around the room. One film, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Yep. The other film, Creed. Yes. Right? New Generation yes. for mm-hmm. Ryan Coogler, and then uh, Teenage Girl, New Generation for the woman who wrote and directed it. Uh-huh. Now, I abstained from that uh, vote. Why, Wade? Why did I abstain? Because you didn't see Creed. I didn't see either of them. I didn't yeah. see either of those films. And you liked them both. No, here's what I did. Yeah. Valentine's Day. Yeah. February 14th, a mm-hmm. couple weeks ago. I'm a dateless wonder. I have no girlfriend. So you so watched I was, Creed. I went to the Pacific Theaters here in, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in town. And I saw Creed because yeah. I had never seen it. Yeah. It's great. It's terrific. You know it's what? Good. I'll tell you something. Ryan Coogler, this guy is a real thing. Yeah. He's smart. He's got a great sensibility. Great eye. Got a great eye. Great eye. By the way, uses a female DP. Oh, that's right. Female DP. It's yeah. great. Yeah. So uh, we don't have to tell you what Creed is about. All I can say is, is, is it is a total deserved coming out party for yep. Coogler and for uh, uh, Michael Jordan. I'm telling you, these guys are great. It's a terrific movie. It's got great style. He's not just some kid who's trying to be cool. No, or, no, no, no. He's this. He's a smart guy. He's and the he, real deal. He gave a terrific speech at our at our awards dinner, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is online. Yes, it is. That speech is online. So I, actually, Variety had it on the Variety website. They had Coogler's speech. Well, yeah, because he mentions Justin. He mentions Justin. Justin. <laughs> mentions Justin. Their whole little uh, mano a mano at Cannes. <laughs> That's it, what it is. It's a great sports story. It's a great reimagining of this classic film. It totally feels of a. It feels a little bit different, yet somehow of a piece with the other Rocky films. Mm-hmm. It's the best Rocky film since Rocky Two. Let's face yeah. it. You know, I just think there's a lot of talent that uh, was on display here. I'm, yes, I was indeed. very impressed by it. So it's uh, that's out on Blu-ray and DVD and uh, Ultraviolet as well. Yeah, you know what? I was kind of hoping there'd be uh, maybe some, uh, you know, Ryan Coogler, uh, maybe a little audio commentary. No, these things they they rushed all these things out too quickly. I know that's the thing. It's kind there, of a there bummer. may be some special editions at a certain point, uh, but I, I I doubt it. I I agree, but this is uh, I, I just was really impressed. And you know what? I was impressed with Stallone. I really was. I think that they, somehow he you know what he was performing like a guy who didn't have anything to prove anymore. 
and he wasn't going to overact. He was just going to he was just going to slip into a very old, comfortable suit and just play that role. And yep. It was wonderful. And then uh, also out this week is uh, I'm the Danish girl. Without Tracy Morgan, of course, uh, which also won an Oscar last night for a sporting actress, and very deservedly for Alicia Vikander, who frankly could have won Best Supporting Actress in four different movies. Well, uh, she was the uh, Jessica Chastain of uh, she of last year. She was in everything, and she was wonderful in everything, and uh, she was in Ex Machina, Ex Machina, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, as well, which won, uh, surprisingly, special effects. That was a weird split situation, I guarantee you. That thing squeaked through that award. That was the that was the real dark horse. But uh, this also, Blu-ray, DVD, and Ultraviolet. And um, actually, sorry, I take it back. Blu-ray and Ultraviolet. No DVD on this one. Uh, and this is also from uh, Universal, the by way of Focus. And uh, I think we all know this. The, the, it's inspired by the story, uh, directed by Tom Hooper, of course, who did King's Speech and Les Miserables. And uh, this is basically the story of uh, Einar Wegener, who uh, was the first, uh, you know, the first uh, gender reassignment surgery uh, subject. And it's a, it is a compelling and tragic story. I don't think it's terribly interesting as a movie. Uh, I think it's uh, it, it it sort of wallows a little bit in this uh, this relationship between the two artists played by Eddie Redmayne and Alicia Vikander, and of course, then suddenly you know he comes out with all of his feelings and his issues and how it interrupts their marriage, and you know slowly moving toward the surgery, and it's sort of it's it's a lot of very artsy sitting around waiting for the thing to happen that eventually does happen. Uh, but she is wonderful, and there are some great supporting performances. And uh, technically, it's beautiful, although I have to say I'm starting to see Tom Hooper's directing. I'm becoming very aware of his crutches, most notably that horrible fisheye lens that he insists on using when he shoots scenes all over the place. Every single time that crazy fisheye shows up, I just sit there and I go, okay, here's Hooper using the fisheye again. He's got to lay off it. Even Kubrick understood you can't use that all the time in every movie. Well, that was not the biggest problem with this film. No. I, this film is just, you know what, it's, if you really strip it down, it's just very mainstream. It's just weak sauce. You know, there's something almost, there's something a little too careful about it. See, maybe that's what it is. It's just, it's, it's very aware of what it's going to do and what it has to do, and it doesn't really take any risks. It no. doesn't really veer no. anywhere that it's not expected. And, and you know what, I got to say, that, that, that ending, so suddenly, yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it, it it's sort just, of it's just like what he's, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it's, I'm trying not to give it away, but yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Like it he is, he has his one last line of dialogue. It is, Tell I love her. It, well, here's the problem. Here, I think here's here's part of the problem is biopics. Um, as a writer friend of mine said to me the other day, he said people people have some nerve. They don't really live their lives in three acts. Um, and and that I think is the point. Uh, and it, this is someone who has adapted, uh, you know, biopics before. I think the the problem is that uh, you either have to do the Lawrence of Arabia thing and find that moment, that little episode in the life that has some kind of dramatic relevance, or you have to figure out a way of imposing a dramatic structure on a life that may not suggest one. And everything about Einar's life is not necessarily dramatic. It goes to a dramatic place, but what gets you there? is not structurally all that dramatic. So they have to sort of invent drama in the relationship and in other relationships and in social situations. And it does feel like they're sort of treading water a little bit and going through the, through the motions just to get to the place that ultimately winds up not being all that climactic. 
Wade, you said it yeah, so well. Not really. I feel like that, that we should cancel the show. Okay. Uh, well, here's Great. what we have, Wade. Uh, yes. What else do we have? Okay. Uh, Billy Ray, one of my favorite screenwriters. Love Billy Ray. He wrote Captain Phillips. He wrote Source Code. He wrote State of Play, which is a totally over, overlooked movie. He wrote also directed Breach. Uh, his new film is a little less um, successful called Secret in Their Eyes. It is a remake of a foreign film, and uh, I have to say that uh, it's got a great cast, and it definitely has its thriller moments. It's not like a bad film. Um, what I like about it is that it's a little bit rough around the edges than the original, which is kind of nice, but... Um, it stars uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Nicole Kidman, and uh, Julia Roberts, who, by the way, is uh, very good in this. She really kind of strips herself down and really kind of goes to that emotional heart of it. She's used, And Nicole Kidman, though, I just feel like she's lost it. I don't know if it's the plastic surgery or whatever it is, but um, Nicole Kidman is just not the same person. Anyway, uh, Julia Roberts plays a, a, a woman whose a teenage daughter has been uh, murdered, and then years later uh, she's been searching for the killer, and now there's a new lead. And, uh, you know, will she find the murder or not? So this has a lot of thriller beats that I think maybe the um, the movie didn't really suggest at the beginning. You were kind of like really into this, into Julia Roberts's journey and if she'd find the killer. And then when it kind of goes to this super thriller place, it's uh, it kind of sacrifices like character and atmosphere for just a bunch of thriller beats. So, you know, there's some good stuff here because I think Billy Ray is just a very talented guy. But I think it feels like a bit of a for hire work. You know, but he's so talented that, he, that even he can make a four-hire work kind of interesting. But uh, I would pass on Secret in Their Eyes unless uh, it's Saturday night and you literally have nothing else to watch. Also, My All-American is a uh, kind of a bland little uh, movie, sports movie. This mm. is written by the guy who did uh, Hoosiers. By the way, Hoosiers, can I tell you something? You want to yeah. hear something controversial? Yeah. Hoosiers, not a good movie. Oh, really? You've decided that uh, yes, now, decided many years that. after the fact. Yes. Oh, Rudy, by the way, not a good movie. Okay. Well, I'm just saying. I, I know I'm going to get uh, uh, emails or, or tweets yeah. or whatever the hell it is. They, but, don't, uh, they don't date. I didn't like Rudy in the first place, but they don't date well. I'll agree. <laughs> Even though I love Hackman. Oh, Hackman's the best. Yeah. Although, you know, with the, the scene where, uh, where he measures the... Uh, he, oh, yeah, he measures good. the uh, the, the basket. Yeah. You know, it's 10 feet for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Whether you're the underdog or the favorite, the basket's yeah. always 10 feet high, yeah. whatever it is. That was a terrific scene. Yeah. Anyway, uh, My All American stars Aaron Eckhart and uh, Finn Whitrock, who uh, was also in uh, The Big Short, and uh, Robin Tunney. This is a true story about a, a coach and a college football coach. And, uh, you know, the problem with this film is that, you know, the problem with these inspirational sports films is that they hit, they all hit the very – same beats and this film not only hits those beats but it has sort of a very square i don't, I don't want to say conservative i don't, I don't mean politically conservative i mean just has, has a very square sensibility that i feel like just yeah. sort of makes it not all that interesting just a little too white bread a little too scrub clean you know i just felt like it just had this kind of sanitary feel to it that really kind of kind of just kind of sucked the drama out of it i hear you it, so, looked that, um, it looked that way. Yeah, so I, I would pass on my All-American. All right, I've got a couple of comedies here. Um, the Night Before, which comes to us from the Seth Rogen, uh, Evan Goldberg crew, which is kind of a derivation. They're kind of like a spinoff of the Apatow crew. 
Um, you know, directed by their friend Jonathan Levine, who co-wrote it with a bunch of other people, including Evan Goldberg, and Goldberg and Rogan produced it. And bottom line, here's the deal. Uh, Rogan, Anthony Mackie, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt play three guys who always, three childhood buddies who always get back together again every year on uh, Christmas Eve. And now they're, you know, all sort of they're having to settle down. So this is their last big fling uh, on their their big New Year's Eve uh, or their big Christmas Eve, I'm sorry, their big Christmas Eve uh, kind of night of madness and mayhem and debauchery and what have you. And um, it's called The Night Before. It's not that funny. Uh, it should have been a lot funnier. It's bit funny, as our friend Tim Cogshell would say, which is that there are maybe five or six bits that are really, really funny, and then it's long between them, and it just uh, it's it's... Almost feels, you know, like it was written more as a series of sketches than anything else. But I mean, you know, good, good, good try. I can't really fault him for the effort. It has moments, uh, and I like all three of the actors. Uh, it's got a bunch of stuff that's exclusive to the Blu-ray. This also comes with ultraviolet on it. A uh, bunch of exclusive uh, deleted scenes and extended scenes, and uh, this weird Mister Green lineorama thing, which it really isn't that big of a deal. Uh, all of that is unique to the Blu-ray, and then it also has a bunch of uh, generic uh, featurette stuff that uh, the DVD also has, including uh, a bunch of you know outtake stuff, which is kind of funny. It's all right. Um, and then I think a much more underrated comedy is uh, Don Verdeen, which just kind of came and went. Uh, Lionsgate didn't put a whole lot into this, I'm sad to say, but this is from Jared Hess, uh, who kind of goes back to Napoleon Dynamite territory with this. I thought this was very, very, very funny. The uh, A lot of really unbelievably funny supporting performances in here. Sam Rockwell basically plays a uh, a fraud archaeologist who goes and just digs up a bunch of crap, and then he sells it to uh, extremely evangelical believers as biblical artifacts. So he'll come back with, like, a piece of salt and just say, this is part of Lot's wife, you know, from uh, from the Holy Land. And the whole thing goes completely off the rails when he realizes how much money there is to be made with having these groups uh, patronize his digs. And he's got this just completely idiot Israeli, uh, played by Jermaine Clement, who does an Israeli accent in a, in a way that, and has a dancing scene. It's just, he's so funny. It, it, it just slays me. Um, anyway, it, it, things get really, really ridiculous when he decides that he's got to go and find uh, the skull of uh, Goliath and bring that back as an artifact and that this is going to somehow keep him rich for the rest of his life. It's, it gets completely unhinged. Really good supporting performances. Uh, Amy Ryan, shockingly great. Sam Rockwell, very, very funny. Will Forte, and Danny McBride, good cast, all good. Um, you know, not as probably not as uh, as obviously culty as Napoleon Dynamite, but really a lot of fun. So, if you missed this last year, if it just kind of fell between the cracks, I do recommend checking it out. Uh, Jared Hess wrote it with his wife once again. Very, very, very funny. Oh wait, there was a movie uh, called The Boy that came out um, recently, and uh, there's another movie called The Boy that came out a little less than recently. But uh, we'll talk about that one because uh, this thriller stars uh, Rain Wilson from The Office, not somebody you usually uh, think of as a thriller guy. Yeah. Really. So this movie called The Boy stars David Morrison, uh, again, Rain Wilson. It's a uh, it's kind of a dull little thriller about uh, a nine-year-old kid who is kind of pretty much going to grow up to be a psychopath. And uh, he lives with his father in this uh, remote hotel. And uh, it's all about uh, how this kid kind of, you know, Starts by, you know, 
luring a full-size deer to its death and oh that's lovely that... <laughs> that's fantastic exactly uh the movie was based on a short which i did it's not always see, a problem which i did not see um but you can tell because the movie is too long that they had an issue trying to create stuff to do with these characters to pad out a movie running time. Now, Rain Wilson was the executive producer of this. I don't know uh, why. All I can say is I'm just not really used to seeing Rain Wilson all bearded and bloodied and looking all serious. Um, he's not the, you know, I kind of like seeing him in funny stuff. Although I did see him on stage recently at the... Um, What's at the uh, David Geffen at the Geffen uh, oh, yeah, Playhouse? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent, one man really? show he was in. Yes, really? it's ba- he, yeah. did, he did he did a show. Uh, Tom Payne, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, one act or one man show. He was amazing in it. Wow. He, however, he's not amazing in this. All right. Anyway, so the boy is not that great. It's pretty much about a, a boy who kills animals, and uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, not really what I'm into. Anyway, Narcopolis is a um, is a, f- a British film, and it's about uh, a, a very near future where uh, recreational drugs are um, are legal. And uh, it's about a guy named Greaves, because you know in movies names have a purpose, mm-hmm. right? Greaves, right. Sure. Means, you know what that means? Yeah, grieving. Oh, not happy. Yeah. I see. <laughs> I guy, understand. <laughs> the guy made his uh, a feature film debut here. It's uh, y- you know it looks nice. He does a good job. It's sort of like the steely high tech surfaces and the kind of stuff that like you know CGI kind of puts a spit polish on these things. But um, ultimately, Greaves, who he's, he has to he's called upon to investigate this this dead person and what happened to the dead person. And you know the ending was pretty good. It's kind of thought provoking the ending, but uh, in the middle, it's just really not that interesting. The uh, the um, Cast is pretty good. Jonathan Price is in this. I'm sorry he has devolved into showing up and stuff like this. But, mm. uh, yeah, Narcopolis, I would pass. Extraction with uh, Kellen Lutz, Bruce Willis, and uh, Gina Carano. Not oh. that great. Bruce Willis has been starring a lot of crap lately. Man, he's been doing a lot of crap. I don't really know what the situation is with that guy. But um, this is a movie about uh, a terrorist group kidnapping a CIA guy. Oh, well, there you go. And they have to, you know what they have to do? Extract, Extract him. him. Yeah, okay. Hence I, the title. I'd pass it. Oh, those. my gosh. Uh, you know, uh, Pixar had their first kind of, like, tanker uh, this last season, and The Good Dinosaur, which didn't really seem like a Pixar film, did it? it you know what? It seemed a little too juvenile, actually. It, it, it Didn't it feel like, for the first time, they weren't stretching? They weren't sort of trying to do something? It's like, really, a Pixar movie about a dinosaur? Like, that doesn't sound... That sounds like Disney imposing their vision, just assigning a job to Pixar and saying, do this. Um, anyway, the premise is, I guess, engaging enough, which is, what if the asteroid, presumably the asteroid that, that uh, made the dinosaurs extinct, what if the asteroid never hit the Earth? So the dinosaurs continued to live on the Earth, and then people came about, and then people and dinosaurs got to coexist, which I guess is the dream of all kinds of creationist groups out there who pro- who actually promote that theme in certain theme parks, but... That notwithstanding, uh, this is the idea. You know, it, it really gets into Disney territory with this little dinosaur named Arlo, who's an apatosaurus. Not that I have any idea what that is, and uh, he's doing the thing that you know he and he makes friends with a little cave boy, and uh, it's sort of all the all about the journey, the literal and the figurative journey of life and becoming what you're meant to be, and blah blah blah, and the usual stuff, which has been you know everything from Pinocchio to. Uh, the Lion King, and it's uh, every everything that uh, every boy centric Disney film always seems to traffic in that theme. Anyway, 
Uh, good animation. You can't fault it. It's Pixar. Well, it, I mean, it's beautiful. It, it is beautiful. It, it's the animation is just dazzling. I mean, it's you know you can't fault them for that. But it just never really kind of it doesn't it doesn't take flight the it's way the, that you know what I I I actually stopped watching this about half an hour in. This yeah. is during Lafka time. Yeah. I'm like this thing is just it's you know it's it's just too juvenile. It's really for little kids. But it doesn't it doesn't really like. You know what I mean? It's it's not even just that. Like so so is Sean the Sheep. Sean the Sheep's for a little, but Sean the Sheep is smart and clever and fun, and this just never really takes flight. It just feels like you know, it just feels like lazy. It, you know what? It, it it feels like the very first four hire job. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's just even bad. something like Cars Two, which you know was nobody likes yeah. Cars Two, that felt like a Pixar film that just didn't work. Yeah. This feels like. Some copy of a Pixar film. Well, uh, you get the Blu-ray, the DVD, and the Disney Anywhere uh, digital copy, which is the Disney version of Ultraviolet, and then uh, the usual Disney-slash-Pixar pile of featurettes, which just give you every insight into this thing so that there's no secret whatsoever about what uh, inspired the film or how it was made. It's all all revealed. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's, I mean, it's not bad, but don't don't break your neck over it. I was going to wait. I, yeah, uh, well, yeah. That was an option. Uh, Catherine Hardwick directed a new film. It's called Miss You Already. It's with uh, uh, Tony Collette and Drew Barrymore. You know, Catherine Hardwick, it's uh, easy, a hard time. E- easy to forget. She directed yeah. the first Twilight film, and that thing got its ass kicked. Yes. And then they fired her and brought in yeah. another, another director, and then it became Twilight. Yeah. And ever since then, Hardwick has really struggled. Now, this one is just a bizarre film for somebody like Catherine Hardwick. This thing is just your typical just, you know, you know, girl power, weepy, playbook, cliched, oh, look, a montage of pop tunes while they frolic in the in the in the park kind of a movie. It's just really cliched stuff. Tony Collette and uh, Drew Barrymore play a best friends for life, and then one of them is um diagnosed with breast cancer, and so their friendship is tested and all that sort of stuff. I just think that this thing was it's just it's so by the numbers. And it's wonderfully uplifting, just when you expect it to be, and it gets depressing and sad when you expect it to be, and they take this perfect selfie right when you expect them to. And I just think this thing is just really bizarre. I mean, I, it's tough because, like, you know, Hardwick cut her teeth on a film called 13, which was fantastic. And 13 was a very tough-minded it's film. a good film. It's a very good it's film. It's a really good film. This is the opposite. This is slick film, and glossy. Evan Rachel Wood kind of came of age with 13, but yeah. Yeah. This is, but this is just like this female empowerment, just tropes and cliches, and it just feels like, oh, God, so contrived. So, And I'm not just saying that because I'm a guy, by the way. I just think that this thing is just really cliched. So I would pass, unless you really want, unless you want to score points with the girlfriend. Yeah, all right. which you might. Yeah, maybe. I would pass on Miss You Already. So there, there, are, there's all kinds of really bad, weird sci-fi stuff that winds up straight to Blu-ray, straight to DVD, and one of them is Weaponized. Uh, they all seem to star Tom Sizemore for some reason. Anyway, Weaponized is like, uh, you know, uh, Amer- what, what was the, what's the Universal Soldier? It's kind of a Universal Soldier vibe to it. Uh, this, this, the whole idea here is that like. In response to the war on terror, the Mickey Rourke is a scientist who creates this technology, which Tom Sizemore then effectively weaponizes, which lets you swap consciousness with the person you're going to kill on the battlefield. And it gets very cyber warfare, uh, video gamey, and of course the technology is used for ill. 
and gets out of control. And uh, how do you put the how do you put the genie back in the bottle? Blah blah blah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, relative. I mean, look, it's it uh, the production value is perfectly fine. Uh, Johnny Messner is essentially the guy who is supposed to be the hero of this thing. I don't have the slightest idea who Johnny Messner is, but I assume he's some kind of wrestler. I, he's got to be or a WW. Or like a like a mixed martial arts guy, something. I, he's clearly somebody who came in from a field that has no, where he has no understanding of what it is to be an actor, and he doesn't really need to. Uh, and then uh, a couple others to uh, make quick exit here. Anton Corbin, one of my favorite directors. What just happened to that guy? Man, he keeps doing like weird offbeat things, and this should have been a much much better film. Uh, this is called Life. And uh, it started, you know, I mean, a good idea here, basically, Robert Pattinson and Dane DeHaan. And Dane DeHaan is, uh, you know, he's like one of the up-and-coming guys, right? And he plays James Dean here, and he does a really, really good job, like a better job than James Franco did in his Emmy-winning performance on television. And uh, Ben Kingsley is very good. Joel Edgerton is in this. I mean, it's it's a really good cast. It's a solid film. Uh, financed primarily by Canadian money, but uh, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. Unfortunately, I don't know what the what went wrong in it. Anyway, uh, Robert Pattinson plays Dennis Stock, who is the uh, young photographer who uh, you know sort of captured um, James Dean in that uh, famous Life magazine spread. And this is essentially the uh, the story of the months that lead up to that, all of the uh, all the stuff that kind of uh, leads into into that moment, and um, it's it it has its moments, but it just doesn't. It's not kind of fully baked, you know, in the script stage. It doesn't really doesn't really come together. Uh, you get interviews with uh, the the main actors, but it just uh, man, it's just too bad. It's like a feels like a real missed opportunity. You know what Corbin's problem is? Huh? Is that he wanted he wound up wasting George Clooney in The American. Now I man. love The American. I do too. That movie's great. It is. But I just people did not expect George Clooney to star in, in like a, a thriller directed by Antonioni. It isn't even a thriller. Yeah, it's an Antonioni film. It's like an Antonioni thriller, which is to say it's a thriller that that leads you to believe there's going to be some great action payoff and the payoff winds up being sort of philosophical existential. It's like it's like watching. Uh, it's like if you're watching a movie that is teasing you and making you think that it's going to turn into a James Cameron movie, and then it turns into a Terrence Malick movie. That's basically what happens. And Corbin makes those kinds of movies, and uh, yeah, it, it was very Antonioni. But uh, yeah, I'm a big fan right. of him. Yeah, no, he's, he's a great director. I just hope he gets a really good shot again one of these days. And then uh, the North Star uh, is worth checking out. Uh, I say with reservations because it is well made. This is from uh, RLJ, Robert Johnson's company, formerly Image, and it is uh, it is a it is a another true life slave story, which now arrives a couple of years after Twelve Years a Slave won Best Picture. And a year before, we are going to get Birth of a Nation, which is the Nate Parker film uh, that uh, is likely to be a really big deal at the Oscars next year. And I predict he's going to get four nominations. He's going to match the Orson Welles-Warren Beatty feat of being nominated for writing, directing, acting, and producing in a single uh, ceremony. And, um, you know, I, 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 I want to give credit where credit is due for, for good efforts. And this is a decent story. And there are a lot of slave stories, as there are a lot of Holocaust stories that are worth telling. But I, I feel in this time when we're talking a lot about opportunities for black actors, I really feel like somebody needs to let black actors play something other than slaves. And, and Mercy Street on television is guilty of that as well. And however good it is, 
at a certain point, you know what? Uh, I, I think the black actors are going to be fed up with that, and they're going to say, like, you know what? Um, I, I, now I really feel for all the Asian actors that were playing, like, you know, Japs and Gooks and, and Koreans in every single war movie that Hollywood decided to make from, you know, 1939 until, you know, 1960 or 68 or 69, even into the 70s, where if you were Asian, the only job you were going to get was you were getting blown up by GIs. And it's we're getting to that point now, and uh, enough already with the slave movies. I, I think I think we you know l- give it a rest, maybe a few more times down the line, but let's not overdo it right now. Anyway, uh, so the, the this is basically the idea of uh, you know centers with runaway slaves, and it's it is uh, it's decent production value, some good good performances, um, actors that I'm not that familiar with, uh, Clifton Powell and Jeremiah Trotter, along with uh, actors I'm very much a fan of, Keith David and Lynn Whitfield. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, give, give it a look if the genre is of interest to you, but I have some reservations just given the circumstances of the day, so. All right, Mark, that's it for new movies. Let's, uh, we're, we're quickly coming down to the end of the show, and there's so much stuff we, we haven't covered, because uh, we talked so much about Oscars. Let's, uh, cover some music. We are due to, to blow through, uh, music DVDs and Blu-rays a little bit. We haven't talked about these in a while. Um, let me just go through some of the classical stuff, which I know that you hate uh, endlessly, and uh, I will make quick work of the classical stuff. Uh, here, uh, starting off with uh, Tales of Hoffman, the Offenbach opera uh, is out on a Blu-ray from uh, Teatro Real uh, in Madrid. This is released by uh, uh, through the. Um, uh, Arte line, the uh, Bel Air Classics. Very nice if you're a fan of Offenbach. That's nice staging. There's also Mozart's uh, David Penitente uh, f- uh, that is performed in Salzburg. That's also on Blu-ray. David with an E at the end. Uh, Penitente. Very, very nice. Uh, Proms at the Royal Albert Hall. A performance uh, of uh, pieces by Dvorak, Strauss, and Beethoven. Also on Blu-ray from Unitel Classica. Anything that takes place at the Royal Albert Hall is a lot of fun. Definitely worth checking out. I thought this was wonderful. This is uh, from Opus Arte, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Performances of Love's Labor's Lost uh, and Love's Labor's Won. Um, and, uh, you know, Much Ado About Nothing is the title that we more commonly associate with Love's Labor's One. We don't realize that it sort of goes along with Love's Labor's Lost. But uh, here they call it Love's Labor's Lost because they're putting them both together. And uh, it's absolutely wonderful. This is a special edition Blu-ray. And uh, it's just fantastic. Absolutely lovely. Uh, not classical music per se, but performance. And it's also from a classical music company. So... Uh, beautiful. If you ever want to know why the Royal Shakespeare Company is so admired and so respected and such a great training ground for actors, watch this. You will see people here, and I guarantee you, these actors that you see here, half of them will be like major television and movie stars in about six or seven years. And, and here we have, nothing, we have nothing like that here. Nothing like we, that we, here. We have no training ground. No. We have no farm system. No, nothing at all. They, I mean, they just come and they you, expect it, to be famous. Unbelievable talent. I guarantee you, Look, watch these. Look at these actors. Five or six years from now, boom, they're going to be in Oscar-winning movies. They'll be in hit BBC TV series. They're just, they'll just nail it. It'll be great. Um, and then we've also got Swan Lake, another uh, performance of Blu-ray, uh, on Blu-ray of uh, Swan Lake uh, from the Bolshoi Ballet. Uh, absolutely gorgeous. Really, really gorgeous. The nice thing about the Bolshoi, they don't need to actually do anything fancy. They don't need to you know, do it up all modern and weird and funky. It just do it the classic way because they are such, such a great company. 
Uh, also from Opus Arte, a performance of the Royal Opera House of uh, a whole bunch of Puccini. This is a boxed set uh, that includes performances of La Boheme, Tosca, and Turandot, uh, directed by some really amazing directors with some great conductors. Uh, really, really first-rate stuff. If you're a fan of Puccini, this is like a must-have because it's everything you need in one really cool Blu-ray box set. And then uh, Carlos Acosta dances, Royal Ballet Classics, uh, La, Fide, La Fille Malgarde, Romeo and Juliet, and Don Quixote, also uh, performed by the Royal Ballet in the Royal Opera House, another box set from uh, Opus Arte, great for ballet fans. And then uh, lastly, there is uh, Cinderella, the Prokofiev, uh, which is very, very nice. Um, uh, choreography by Alexei, I'm going to try this again, Alexei Ratmansky. Uh, very, very nice. Uh, this is a Blu-ray and a DVD uh, combo set. And uh, this comes to us from Marinsky. Uh, beautiful performance and beautiful staging. And uh, that's it for my classical stuff. Okay, Wade. There you go. Let's talk about music. First, we have Burt Bacharach, A Life and Song. If you think to yourself, who is Burt Bacharach? Well, let me tell you. He is fantastic. Wade knows who Burt Bacharach is. I love Burt Bacharach. He has won three Academy Awards. Has he really? Yes, he has. Three, three yes, songs? He He's awesome. I had no idea. Three-time Academy Award winner. Should have been four. Did you know that? Because Grace of My Heart, he and uh, Elvis Costello wrote all the songs in that, or the best songs in it. That, that Not one of those songs got nominated. Should have won. Should have freaking won. That was a great movie. Uh, Wait. well, here's the thing. Bacharach is, uh, for movie fans, best known as the guy who wrote uh, the theme to Arthur, right? Yeah. When you get caught between right. the moon and New York City. Yeah, which he wrote with like nine other people, including Christopher Cross and Peter Allen. And I, I wonder how that writing process actually went. Well, Chris, Christopher Cross is the one who sang it. Yeah. You know, and then but they uh, all wrote, there were like seven people who went up there and accepted the award for writing that song. I remember thinking, well, they also did. How did that work? Well, he also did Raindrops Keep Falling in My Head. Yeah. From That's right. uh, that Butch one Cassidy. Too. That one too, yeah. What's New Pussycat? Oh. How can you not love What's New Pussycat? Anyway, uh, Burt Bacharach is fantastic. And, uh, you know, and this uh, this particular Blu-ray, A Life and Song, all of his um, songs performed at the Royal Albert Hall by a bunch of... I, I, I wish some of, the, some of the people who had uh, performed this stuff was a little more famous. I mean, Joss Stone is probably the most famous person oh, here. Oh, she's good. Yeah, but I was, you know, the, considering what he's done, I was kind of hoping they'd get better people to sing these songs. Joss, but uh, Joss Stone was like Adele before there was Adele. Uh, Adele, she's a phenomenon, man. Yeah. I mean, now what you know, it's like, you know, nobody buys albums anymore. But you know, everyone <laughs> ran out to buy the Adele album. Yeah. You know, it's and true. that's just fantastic. Good for yeah, her. I agree. Elvis Costello, uh, Detour. This is live at uh, Liverpool Philharmonic Hall. I have seen Elvis Costello live. I saw him many years ago at Royal Albert Hall live. And uh, since then, he has only created even more and more fantastic, memorable films. You'll hear most of his uh, hits. Elvis is known for not necessarily wanting to play all of his hits. Um, but he does do Watching uh, the Detectives and Peace, Love, and Understanding. So he does do some of them. But generally speaking, when you, uh, when you, have, when you go to an Elvis Costello show, you don't know what you're going to get. This one particularly, although is good. Uh, slash based on a raise on the sunset strip. I like this a lot. I'm a big fan of uh, Slash. No, oh, he is by the way Jewish. Oh, is he really? Yeah, his name Seriously? is Saul. I didn't know that. You didn't know that? No. Slash is he's just a Jewish guy. Oh, that's that's sweet. <laughs> I think this thing is great. This thing includes Dave we Grohl. More, we need more Jewish rockers. You know, we really do. Springsteen's yeah. Jewish. No, he's not. Um, 
Dave Grohl is in this. Dave Grohl, by the way, did a very nice job singing uh, yes. Blackbird in the yeah. in memoriam mm-hmm. last night at the Oscars. Yes. Alice nice. Cooper's in this. Uh, the late Lemmy is in this. And so it's just a great, it's a documentary. It's uh, presented by DirecTV and Guitar Center, which is a little bit whorish, but uh, the music is still good. The songs are still good. And it really kind of gives you a sense that, you know, Slash is not just some crazy tattooed rocker in a, in, in a top hat. He's yeah. a talented guy. And, I, and I, have a, I have a tidbit for you in a moment, but keep going. It relates to guitar playing, but go on. I'll tell you in a moment. Uh, there's a, um, there is a documentary called uh, I Am Thor. It's a little bit like Anvil. You ever see the documentary Anvil, the story of Anvil? Um, there's this guy, John Thor. Oh, yeah. And he came out in the 70s, kind of when Metallica and Kiss were yeah, breaking, yeah. but he never really kind of like uh, broke through. Mm-hmm. He did star in a couple films, including Rock and Roll Nightmare, which actually I kind of like, and Zombie Nightmare, which I've never seen. But uh, then after a while, the guy kind of disappeared. So. This is the story of uh, Thor, the story of a guy who came up at the right time but didn't quite hit it like some of the other ones. And so um, I think it's definitely worth seeing if you like movies like Anvil. And I liked Anvil a lot. Nice. I don't know if you liked Anvil, Wade. Anvil, the story of Anvil? Oh, uh, yeah, the, uh, the the Anvil thing, which is like, like the, the real-life uh, Spinal Tap guys. Yeah, it was a great yeah. documentary. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, anyway, one last mu- uh, music documentary. We have uh, The Jam. Now, they were an English uh, punk band back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Never my jam. But uh, they were really popular in the uh, UK. They had like 20 consecutive top 40 singles, something like that, in the UK uh, between like, 1977 and like, kind of like the early 80s. And here we have a Blu-ray about The Jam. One is called uh, – it's kind of like two films in one. One is called About the Young Idea, which is a uh, uh, kind of like a documentary film about them. It uh, includes additional interviews and a performance from 1979. There's also from 1980 a uh, collection of uh, live performances called When You're Young. And uh, those who like the jam, all their songs are here, Thickest Thieves, Modern World, whatnot. There's about uh, 15 songs on the, um, on the When You're Young portion of the Blu-ray. And uh, yeah. If you like the jam, you'll definitely like this. They were never really my thing, but uh, if you're kind of like into like that angry young man, kind of like partially punk, partially mod kind of thing that was going on back then, you might totally dig the jam. All right, here's my tidbit. Uh, Kira Rossler, who was one of the uh, uh, winning sound editors for Mad Max yesterday. A lot of people are watching. They're like, Kira Rossler, sound editor. That name sounds familiar. She was a guitarist for Black Flag in the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> how about that? Awesome, isn't that funny? That's a great second act. It's a, it's a tell me about it. No kidding. Okay, I'll tell there's... you about it. See, there's a first act. Uh, what's that huge stack in the middle? Uh, this is all classic. This is like all of our classic stuff. We're not going to get through any of that, really. Uh, we're going to have to get through it eventually. But uh, you know what? We do have to mention are some really cool docs, and a lot of cool docs have come around the last few weeks. Uh, I'll just make mention a few of these really quickly. Um, the Iron Ministry is really an amazing look at the train culture of China. It, this thing is is, is mind boggling. You, you, you don't understand the role that trains play in uh, that, that the railroad plays in any country until you watch this, because trains in China it's a completely different thing. It's it's a, it's just this is poetic and existential and weird. And uh, it, 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 it just it, – it really – it's very, very troubling. It, it, there's a it, – it's almost like trains in China are 
I don't know. There's almost like a weird biomechanical function to the society. Anyway, no, they know very... when I was in Japan, when I was in Japan, yeah. this is a long time ago. This yeah. is like 1999. Uh, they, I, I went to a video arcade, right? Yep. To see what they got going on in Japan. Yep. You got to see what, what, what consumer electronics and right. arcade games they got going on in Japan. In Japan, they have a video game. Yes. Like, you know, like back, like, like you'd go in the arcade, like sure. back in the day. Sure. Video game. Yep. You drove a train. And all you did was drive, was this, drive train. this train yeah. into a station, pick up passengers, Fantastic. close the door, go to the next station. That's all you do. No Fantastic. aliens, nothing blowing up. You just drove a train. Oh, that's great. Uh, and then from PBS on Blu-ray is The Black Panther's Vanguard of the Revolution. Uh, this is director Stanley Nelson's very comprehensive documentary about the Black Panthers. It's a little bit of a, I, no pun intended, it's a little bit of a whitewash. It doesn't really go into the darkest chapters of the Black Panthers and, and some of the really fringy stuff, but it gets pretty dark. Uh, you know, Huey Newton's big uh, turn toward crimes and drugs and all of that stuff. I mean, it gets into all of that stuff. Um, but again, this this is not meant to be a comprehensive film. This is not the final film. This is one of many that will sort of become part of a larger corpus analyzing the Black Panthers, and that's what's necessary. One of my favorite docs of the year, if not my favorite doc of the year, was Meet the Patels. Did not get an Oscar nomination because it's just too fun. But you know what? They're going to do like a, a narrative remake of this. And it will undoubtedly not be as good. Now, here's, here's what you have to know about this. This is essentially uh, the story of Ravi Patel, but he directed it with his sister, Gita, who actually is, is friends with Ray. Ray and Gita know each other very well. Yeah, Ray loves this film. He was yeah. uh, really popular. Oh, my up. gosh, I love it. Well, he knows Gita very well. Essentially, uh, if your name is Patel, that means you come from a certain caste of, of Indians who are like one giant family. And... There is a whole culture framed around making sure that you marry the right people who with the right skin tone and you have to have the right bio data, which is like this resume that your parents send around to prospective suitors and other families. And it's just it's an amazing marriage culture. And uh, this is the story of a year in the life of Ravi Patel, who's an actor. You've seen him around. He's a very he's a very good actor. He's been on TV shows and whatnot. And uh, his, you know, he he had he broke up with his white girlfriend and decided, he, why not? I'll try the whole Indian thing that my parents want me to do. And he goes through a year of just bizarre dating rituals to uh, basically get see if he can handle this whole arranged marriage thing that they do the way they do it in North America, which is very different from the way they do it in India. It's much more kind of formal and electronic. Anyway, uh, his family is hilarious. They're amazing. They're, and there's little animated segments in this movie that are to die for. It is a wonderful, absolutely fantastic movie. And it has a narrative structure to it, believe it or not. It's, it's really incredible. So Meet the Patels, a must-watch, because the eventual movie that they remake is not going to be nearly as good. And then uh, Take Me to the River is uh, – I probably should have covered this in the, uh, in the music segment, but uh, it's a doc. Yeah, Wade. Well, it's a music doc. It's, yeah, Wade. It's, it's a, it could go either way. But uh, this, is, this is actually a very – it's not as good as Muscle Shoals. Uh, Muscle Shoals to me is, for this kind of thing is still the best there is. But um, this is – for a movie that's about the whole Memphis music scene, uh, essentially financed by – the uh, William Bell, who you know is the uh, the Stax music guy, um, it, it's uh, it, it's good. It, it it it's fine. You know, it's it's sort of uh, it's a little bit too self promotional, but um, it, it's it's still you know if you're if you're into the whole Memphis scene and Stax records and all that, it's it's good. Um, but again, just be aware of the fact that it's very kind of self promotional and but you know 
Good music. Memphis, good scene. Uh, March to Freedom, 400-year history from slavery to salvation, uh, is essentially one of many, many documentaries looking at the, uh, the, uh, the civil rights movement in a broader continuum, uh, sort of looking at it more as in its continuum relative to the history of slavery and uh, Jim Crow and uh, Reconstruction and so forth and so on. And uh, again, not not a comprehensive documentary in any way, but a, a very thorough one. And uh, it uh, it's you know for for something that is eleven hours in total, uh, it's amazing how much it actually leaves out. To be honest, but uh, it's you know as an educational tool, it's pretty good. Uh, Gold Rush: The Discovery of America is a five part documentary on the the Gold Rush, which is amazing. Uh, I knew very, very little about the gold rush, as, as it turns out. I thought I knew everything from school, but it, there's just so many subplots and, and subplots to subplots. Uh, it really gets into a lot of fascinating stuff. This was just – the gold rush was a gigantic disaster. You realize that. More people lost their shirts than actually made a fortune. It, I mean, it, the gold rush is all about people, like, going broke, ultimately. It's not about people getting rich. Well, it's a rush. So basically they all rushed to California yeah. thinking something amazing was going to happen. Exactly. And as usual, nothing amazing nothing, happened. Nothing amazing happened. And uh, then the last doc here is uh, Sunshine Superman, uh, which is all about uh, Carl Bonish, who is the father of base jumping, and uh, which is insane. Uh, I, people who base jump, I don't understand it. I don't know what the thrill is. It, it, it's like you have a death wish. But uh, anyway, this is so it's it's a Blu-ray from Magnolia. Beautiful photography. And I'm glad somebody else is doing this and uh, taking photographs of it because there's no way I'll ever be caught dead doing that. Well, if I did it, I'd be dead. Yeah. I would just go splat. A couple uh, TV stuff, uh, TV DVDs we've got to talk about. Drunk History Season 3. I think the Drunk History stuff is really funny. What they do is they uh, talk about history and get drunk while they do it. And here we have, uh, you know, New Jersey, spies, Oklahoma, space. It's all about uh, just looking at people. Talking about history while they get drunk. And nice. there's extended scenes, deleted scenes where they're even more drunker and they even uh, go off the rails even more. And I think this show is really funny. So I would definitely check out Drunk History. We also have a uh, big deal on Sci-Fi Channel uh, recently was uh, a uh, six, it's like a six episode uh, adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. I remember I uh, read this when I was a kid and I, um, I did love this book. As you know, it's just like they, they updated it for uh, modern times. You know, in the book, it was all kind of Cold War space race. But here, they've updated it to today. Same thing. There's these aliens called the Overlords, and they have an ambassador, and they promise that uh, they're going to bring technological wonderfulness to everyone at Earth. But what really happens? Oh, my Lord. I think this thing was pretty successful. Um, very surprised. Uh, the ambition is there. It's got good characters. The effects are good. It looks great. Uh, move slow, but that's okay. We got six hours to kill. You know, it's if it was a two-hour movie, it'd be a different situation. But uh, I think this thing was impressive. I was very, uh, very impressed with this thing. So uh, I would definitely check out Childhood's End, especially if you read the book. I loved the book as a kid. I always thought it would be an amazing movie, and I got to be honest, I think they kind of bonked it. I really do. What? I think they blew it. I think there are so many opportunities to do this right, and this is just all sci-fied out and low budget, and it's just wrong cast. I, if I had written and directed this, it would have been a lot better. I'll tell you. I'll just tell you. I'm just saying. A lot better would have been really, really cool. That that you know they try to do it as an animated uh, movie at one point too. They just could never figure it out, and it winds up being a sci-fi thing. It's just too bad. It deserves more. 
Should have been a big Oscar contender. Anyway, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, the complete series, is uh, another one of those Bold Ones series from the uh, 1950s and 60s. And uh, this one is uh, it stars E.G. Marshall, John Saxon, and David Hartman. And, uh, you know, David Hartman, gosh, I just completely forgot that he even existed until I, I, we got this thing. Uh, essentially, this all takes place inside the David Craig Institute of New Medicine. And it's one of those uh, old, you know, doctor shows. Now, the only thing that's interesting about this, and this thing, this actually is from the, uh, this is from the later run of the Bold Ones. Uh, this ran from 1969 to 1973. Uh, this was co-created by Stephen Bochco. This is one of the earliest Bochco shows. What? And once you know that, you kind of see it. You can be like, okay, I see kind of there's a Hill Street thing that's working there. I got it. Um, but anyway, it was, you know, the Baldwins has really kind of been all the various incarnations of the Baldwins has sort of been forgotten, and I'm glad that Timeless is bringing them out again. Um, but uh, anyway, there's uh, the, only, the most interesting thing here is that they did a crossover episode uh, for, uh, with Ironside, which, you know... You <laughs> very went, special episode. A very special crossover episode with Ironside, and you watch that, and you're sort of like, hmm, that's interesting. Why would they... D- okay, I guess... You know, there there are a handful of crossover episodes from the golden age of television in the 60s and 70s, which are just weird. They just make no sense at all. And one of them, frankly, is the one that I like the most, which is the crossover between uh, Magnum P.I. and uh, Simon and Simon, which makes no sense at all. But it was fun. Well, how about but like Gilligan's silly. Island and like the Harlem Globetrotters? Didn't the Harlem Globetrotters do a bunch of like no, uh, here's the one crossovers? That would, no, here's the one that would have been – that was a movie. That was a TV movie. But if you had a crossover between like let's say uh, between uh, the Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island, like uh, how would that have worked? You know, that, that, Somehow they, they, they should have figured out how to do that. That would have been great. Or a crossover between you know, I Dream of Jeannie and uh, Bewitched. Why not? And then uh, lastly, the unauthorized collection. Oh, my – uh, they have taken all four of those horrible, unauthorized uh, shows about the making of certain TV shows with casts playing other casts. Basically, the unauthorized Beverly Hills 90210 story, the unauthorized Melrose Place story, the unauthorized Saved by the Bell story, which is more embarrassing than Saved by the Bell, and the unauthorized Full House story. And they've thrown them all onto a single compilation DVD so that you can watch all four of them which amount to approximately six hours of mind-numbing, eye-burning bad television, and you can, uh, you can want to kill yourself at the end. So uh, there are shorter ways of committing suicide, but there's no more arduous way of doing it. And if you really want to drag the pain out, this is a sure way of doing it. You know what? That's a great thing to put on a loop at like a birthday party or some sort of like fun gathering because it's and totally... And make people run away screaming. It's totally cheesy and ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Am, uh, we, Yo, we, no, these are your last two. They, oh, okay. Uh, when I said lastly, that means me lastly. Got so, it. Yeah. Uh, wait, one of the most unlikely hits of the season is the uh, TV adaptation of Fargo. And here we have the second season and uh, this thing is just fantastic. This is just, again, one of the most unexpected successes. I, I don't know what made them want to just like redo Fargo as a TV show. Because really, what it is is it's just about the, it's just about the, the 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 winteriness of it, that sort of detached, ironic attitude of it. That's kind of what they get right now. The Coen Brothers have gone on record as saying that they have not really watched the show. They have no problem with the show, but it's really not their thing. They would never do television because they feel like, 
you know, they do a movie, they live with a character for two hours, and then they're done with that character and they move on. So they're not really interested in doing TV like this. But I got to tell you, the people who do Fargo, I don't know what's in, I don't know what's in the water over there because they yeah. really nail it. This thing is shocking and it's hilarious and it's just excruciatingly good. You really, it's just so surprising. Uh, yeah. Anyway, this season has um, Kirsten Dunst and Patrick Wilson and Ted Danson. It's all the whole thing takes place. The whole thing kicks off after a, a murder at a Waffle House in uh, South Dakota and just sort of goes from there. So um, I'll tell you, the guys who uh, created this thing, they did a great job. Fargo, we'll see, we'll see what happens in season three. But as for season two, I would definitely give this a rental. Uh, the Americans, which is the FX show, which is kind of an interesting little show. It's um, it's on DVD, which is kind of a bummer. It uh, stars Carrie Russell, and she plays a KGB agent, and she is married to a KGB agent, and they are posing as good old-fashioned, just American folks living uh, right near Washington, D.C. And, uh, yeah, the uh, the screws turn really well on this show. Noah Emmerich is also in it. Noah Emmerich, of course, his brother is. Uh, Roland Emmerich. Oh, I was going to say Noah, the guy from the Russell Crowe movie. <laughs> the guy from the Bible. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I think Wait, this, is that guy in the Russell Crowe movie that's in the Bible. Exactly. You know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, I think this thing is pretty good. I'm very surprised. Uh, it seems like that you know FX their shows. You know FX. Here's the thing: people don't realize that FX kind of started the whole good, solid adult one-hour drama yeah, thing did. with Nip Tuck. Yeah, that was kind of the first commercial. The Shield might have been. Shield, that was that yeah. was intense too. Yeah. That was intense yeah. too. But the shield, you know what it is? The shield was the shield pushed the envelope in terms of like violence. But Nip Tuck was just weird. Yeah, like it's about plastic surgeons and the weird sexual yeah. obsessions, and you know, it just had this weird vibe to it, it that it felt did. very R-rated. Where Shield was a great show, but it was just yeah. like it was just like a more out there, violent version of a cop show. Yeah, true. Uh, but anyway, The Americans is a good show. Again, kind of like Fargo, a surprising success. So I would definitely check this out. Season 3 on DVD, not Blu-ray. Why'd you do that, FX? All right. And we're done. We will see you next week. Uh, send us all of your goodies to gods at digigods.com. Go and check out digigods.com for the full list of all the shows, all the stuff that we talk about, all the titles and links to Amazon. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.